Good morning to everybody joining us online. I have to tell you, one of my personal neuroses or, or things that I um, uh, struggle with is the inability. I, I have the, the settings for the stream up on my phone throughout the service. And it takes everything in me not to put my phone right here and watch myself as I preach so that I know exactly how I'm coming across and I can cringe at all of the uh, gesticulations and things that I do. But I, it, it, it's in my pocket and will hopefully keep it there. That is enough of a, a concern for me, and that's without having a live flame directly behind me on a regular Sunday morning. I'm a little bit worried that I'm going to go up in flames here any minute, but as someone pointed out to me before the service, if that happens, maybe our YouTube views will go through the roof and someone will hear something that I have to say. <laughs> you know, every year as a pastor, something interesting happens to me, and that is that Advent sneaks up on me. I plan my preaching, uh, or at least a rough uh, schedule for what my preaching year is going to look like well in advance. Uh, I make all sorts of plans for here's where I want to get to, here's some of the topics I want to cover, and then somehow, the first Sunday of Advent, every year, I find myself the week before going, how is it Advent already? And I think that's especially true for uh, most of us this year. Advent doesn't really feel like it belongs in this time and place right now for many of us, I think. And you know what, as I've mentioned in, uh, in concerning other things, that can be a good thing if we lean into it, because Advent probably shouldn't feel normal. There is nothing expected or normal about God incarnate all of a sudden showing up in a little baby. And so if that's how you're feeling this year, that Advent is unexpected and you don't know what to do with that, lean into it. Lean into that surprise and that, that uh, unexpectedness and that anticipation. Lean right into that. Well, you'd never know it to look at me now, but when I was a child, I was very involved in sports. And again, I understand it doesn't seem that way now, but I played all the sports I could possibly play, but the sport when I was about 10 years old that I liked best was baseball. And the reason I liked baseball was because for the first time in Bolivia, there was going to be a little league, uh, a league for, for, for young people, and they were missing a catcher. And I thought that the gear looked very cool. So I decided right then and there that I was a catcher. Now there's a problem with that. I was a short, scrawny kid, and I wasn't strong enough to get the ball back to the pitcher, which is fully half of a catcher's job. I was really, really bad at baseball. Again, I was, I was just too weak and too small compared to the rest of my classmates or the people my age, and I couldn't keep up. But the gear was cool enough that I stuck with it, and I didn't care that I was bad. My teammates maybe had a different thing, but I actually set a record for, I was also a timid kid, and I set a record for uh, the most walks in a season because I refused to swing the bat. I just would get to the plate and stand there, and this being Little League, 10-year-olds can't really get the ball over the plate very well, and four or five pitches later, I was at first base. Never did anything beyond that, but I could get on base. So this first season we played, we were quite good. We were the only people in Bolivia who had ever played baseball. I was playing with a bunch of other missionary kids. And so we were the only people who had ever played baseball, and we were fairly decent. 
myself excluded. But I decided I needed to get on the level of all of my teammates. And so after the season was over, I decided to ask my parents for a bat. I had a glove, but I needed a bat. I said, I want to get good at hitting, because apparently when you're a catcher, the thing you should do is focus on hitting. And so I asked my parents for a bat, and they said, well, maybe, maybe you'll get one for Christmas. So I waited. This would have been, I don't know, October. And I waited for this bat. And then the tree went up, and the first present with my name on it under the tree was a long box, and I knew exactly what it was. It was under there from, we had a rule in our house that you didn't decorate until the first Sunday of Advent, so it must have gone, in there, gone on there under the tree that first Sunday of Advent. And I waited. And when nobody else was home or when I thought I could get away with it, I knew what this present was. And so I would actually take it out from under the tree and I'd go to my room and I'd grab the entire box and I'd, pr I'd practice swinging it to get to know the, the weight and the feel of it. Again, I was 10 years old and not too bright. Now, my mother, God bless her, is a wonderful woman who's been very supportive of me her whole life. But my mother is not known for her tact or diplomacy. In our family, my father got all of that. My mother is a very blunt woman. And my mother would talk about how, you know, maybe you should focus on other things. Maybe you need to, to work on your throwing. Maybe you need to work on maybe a little bit of your strength or your speed. You know, maybe hitting is not the, the thing you should be focusing on, but I didn't care. I would, I, I would respond back that I knew I was bad, but I was having fun and I wanted to hit. So fine. So for the entire season of Advent, a month straight, I was practicing with this box that I couldn't get my hands around, and I still, you know, this was my prized possession, this bat that was in a box under the tree. And it eventually became a joke in our family. It was fun. And if I can just take one small aside from this and just tell parents, if your kid's having fun with something and they're bad at it, let them go. As long as they're having fun, who cares? Let them go. There's a difference between knowing you're bad at something and feeling bad that you're bad at something. And if, if, if a kid's having fun, let him go. Because I remember this now, you know, 25 years later. So why am I telling this story? What on earth does baseball and a lack of talent have to do with Advent and hope? For that, we need to fast forward a little bit. Because we get to Christmas Day, and I was all excited because the season was beginning in January, because in Bolivia, summer is in January. So the season was beginning in January, and I knew I'd been practicing with this thing. I was like, I'm going to be the best hitter on the team. Never mind you that I still couldn't get the ball out of the infield. That, that didn't matter. But already knowing what this present was, and having played with it in its box and in the wrapping paper for a month straight, I wasn't interested in opening it. I wanted to know what everything else was first. And this was the last present that was handed to me on Christmas morning. And so being 10 years old and very mature and ready to, to uh, accept the responsibility I was given. I didn't tear into this present. I very deliberately opened it. And I opened the edge of the box, and there inside was a bar for doing chin-ups. I don't know if you're laughing at home, but in here, everyone, they may as well be pointing and laughing at this point. Anyway, I was mortified. My heart just shrunk. This, this bat that I had been practicing with was actually a thing to put in a doorway to do chin-ups on. And I was just mortified. I, I probably said some not-so-nice things to my parents um, and decided that this was a terrible gift. But what my parents had understood that I hadn't was, 
My real goal, my real desire, was to get better at baseball. And if I was going to do that, I needed to have enough upper body strength to get the ball back to the pitcher. So after I got over myself and installed this thing, I started using it. And I was still a scrawny kid, but I did put on just enough muscle to be able to throw the ball back to the pitcher. I never got better at baseball beyond that, but at least I could do half the job of a catcher now. And I've since forgiven my parents for this terrible gift that ended up being much better than I expected. And just for the record, they also had a bat waiting another time, but it was one of those traumatic moments for a 10-year-old when I opened it up and stared at it in just this confusion because I'd been anticipating something under the tree for over a month. And then when it got there, I was no longer even excited to open it. And then when I did, it was something different than I'd been expecting. And I found it traumatic. It's not hard to see where I'm going with this, is it? My parents had seen a weakness. They'd prepared something, something that was actually better for me. And I'd been ungrateful. And, I'd, and in my own anticipation, I had turned it into something it wasn't. Something it was never meant to be. In many ways, Christmas is the same. Christmas means that Christ has given us a gift. He's given us a gift of heaven. And at this point, it's still wrapped. It's weird when we talk about Advent season because something that happened over 2,000 years ago, every year in December, we get up and say, it's about to happen. And it's a strange dichotomy. And I could talk about paradoxes for hours, but that's one of the paradoxes of our faith. We celebrate anew this new birth every year, even though it's been happening for 2,000 years. There's a package under the tree for us. It's got our name on it. We know what's in it. We anticipate it. We wouldn't receive that gift if it weren't for the true meaning of Christmas. And so we wait longingly, and then sometimes we get to the day and we're a little underwhelmed, or it's different than we expected. All of a sudden, we open this gift that we've been given, and suddenly we discover that the Christian life is not what we thought it was going to be. The anticipation of Advent isn't the way we had dressed it up in our minds. In 1 Peter 3, it says, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And then in Revelation 21, it says, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. And we read these kinds of verses in the Bible. We sometimes ascribe them to Christmas. Forgetting that Christmas morning, that Advent, is the beginning of of the story, not the end. We get a spoiler here. If you're someone who enjoys uh, movies and, and that kind of thing, you go online, you can find spoilers for all the movies and have the entire movie ruined for you. And there is a segment of people who actually seek these things out ahead of time and then go see the movie. They know how the movie ends before they go see it. And I, I have some of these people in my life, and I can't identify with them, but they, to their in their way of thinking, they enjoy the movie more. They say, I prefer to know what's going to happen going in. It makes me enjoy it more. And I think sometimes we get into that, and we need to be careful with it, because we know how this movie ends. 
And then we come to Advent, which often sneaks up on us. We try and ascribe the ending to the beginning. At this time, this beginning of that Advent, we know what the presence under the tree is. We know what it is, and God wouldn't be as cruel as my parents were to me to allow us to believe that it's something else entirely. But it's what we ascribe to this gift that sometimes sets us up for failure. It's what we do with it. I set myself up for failure with that bat that wasn't a bat. My parents didn't set me up for failure. They never promised me a bat. I had made assumptions about it that weren't true. Because in my mind, there was something I wanted and I was going to go enjoy it. And I'd forgotten that during the season, I had said, you know, I think a pull-up bar might be a good thing for me to gain some upper body strength. So my parents were disappointed. They thought they'd given me a terrible gift, but they hadn't. And in the end, that gift did end up being exactly what I needed it to be. As followers of Christ, we see the gift under the tree. And not only do we see the gift, but we, we know what's inside, and then we make assumptions about it. We know that this gift under there will be perfect. And I want to be clear, the gift under there is perfect in its intentions. God is perfect. The gospel is perfect. It's a perfect salvation, a perfect love. It's perfect forgiveness. And we can't comprehend perfection, and so we try and explain it away. We try and whittle it down. We try and sell that gift under the Christmas tree for us, that gift of salvation, this little baby Jesus, and we try and sell it as what in North America we've come to know as commercialized Christmas. We try and take the Christmas season and make it about themes and, and uh, cute little videos and memes online. When the reality is, this little gift is the most incredible supernatural thing to ever happen to our world. Our job is not to interpret what the gift is, because the gift of Christ is for everyone. It's simply to help people understand that there is a gift waiting for them in the first place. And we've talked about this in other sermons, and this may seem like a, like a strange Advent sermon, and it probably is. It'll become a little bit, hopefully lead to a different place in a minute, but we've talked about how we can't live people's faith out for them. Paul tells everyone to work out their own faith. And this is one of those moments, starting from the beginning in Advent. What does Advent mean? What does the Christmas season mean? Because without knowing the end of the story, the Christmas story is meaningless. But by focusing on the end of the story, we jump too far ahead and forget to, to think about how beautiful this moment is, this story is. There's an old song by a band called Casting Crowns that asks the question, what does this world need? And in the middle of it, there's this interlude that I love, and it says this, people aren't confused by the gospel. They're confused by us. Jesus is the only way to God, but we are not the only way to Jesus. This world doesn't need my suit and tie, my hoodie and jeans, my denomination, or my translation of the Bible. They just need Jesus. We can be passionate about what we believe, 
but we can't strap ourselves to the gospel because we're slowing it down. Jesus is going to save the world, so maybe the best thing we can do is just get out of the way. And I love that part of the song. Because maybe the best thing that we can do sometimes for the kingdom of God is to simply get out of the way. And again, I understand this is strange coming at Christmas, but we do this with Christmas all the time. We try and tell everybody else what Christmas means to us and therefore what it should mean to them. But there's something freeing about this. There's something freeing about this this line because the end of it is one of my favorites. Jesus is going to save the world. There is something freeing about knowing that we can't mess that up. Nothing you or I do is going to stop that. God's going to get his way whether we like it or not. And if it seems like what I'm trying to do is excuse our own actions here, I'm doing the opposite. The true meaning of Christmas, particularly the true meaning of hope at Christmas, is very much about what we do, but it's it's about allowing the gospel to control us instead of trying to do the opposite. Allowing the story of Christmas to change us rather than trying to take the gospel and control it in our own way. This doesn't seem like a very hopeful message, I understand that. But that's not my intent. Because I think the hope, the best part, is this idea that Jesus is going to save the world. And it starts with a little baby being born. He's going to do it, and we can't stop it. The same band that has this little interlude has another song that I love the intent of that says, let my life be the song you sing. And if you think about that for a minute, at first it doesn't seem to make a ton of sense, and then you realize, yes, we are God's creation, and he is expressing himself through us. But too often we try and turn that around, and we try and express God rather than letting him express himself through us. I think it's a great sentiment that our lives could be the song God sings. That he delights in his children so much that our very lives are what he sings. I love that the traditional liturgical calendar includes hope as one of the themes of Christmas. Because it reminds us that Christmas and Advent are about so much more than shepherds and wise men and mangers. That that was just the beginning of the story. And certainly worthy of meditation and celebration, but only there because we know how this story ends. We know what's in the box. We know what's in the manger under the roof of a stable. And it's the fulfillment of a promise. It's the redemption of humankind. When and how and what it looks like, we don't know. That part hasn't happened yet. We can't know, but we know what it represents. So I go back to my original story. That bat that wasn't a bat under the Christmas tree was not what I was expecting. But I was right in what it represented all along. And that's the key. The miracles of that magical first Christmas are are completely insignificant without the knowledge of what they represent. For all of our focus on the nativity story, we forget that the story of Christmas, the, the true story of Christmas, is one of anticipation. It's about waiting. The people of Israel waited on a Messiah. The prophets foretold his arrival. 
They were all looking forward. They were all waiting with anticipation. They were looking to a future of hope. And even now, we look forward. We anticipate the day when he will return. If you have children, you know that there is no more hopeful moment than when you are expecting your, your child. And I can attest to the fact that everything they say about that first moment you hold your child is true. Everything else falls away and suddenly nothing else on earth matters except this little life. It has a way of focusing you. And of course, this is before they've misbehaved for the first time. And in that moment, everything is pure hope. Hope for a full and God-pleasing life. When Abigail and Charlotte were born, I would often just hold them and admire them for what seemed like forever until they started to cry and then I would not know what to do. But you see, when we hold the baby Jesus, we're holding hope itself. Hope in our arms. And it's a wonderful thing to ponder. When we stop trying to ascribe our own set of ex expectations on this, suddenly the, the grand idea of what it represents is so much more powerful. It's a little bit humbling and convicting, though, as well. We've been given this, this child of hope, and we have a responsibility that comes with it that is overwhelming. We have a responsibility to share that hope all year, but no better time than Advent. It surprises many people to learn that the themes of Advent are not uniform across Christendom. The four themes of, of Christmas are always present, hope, love, joy, and peace. But the order in which they come actually varies from tradition to tradition and church to church. If you go online today and check out all the myriad of other churches who are celebrating the first Sunday of Advent, many of them are, doing, are, are, are observing different themes than hope. And I'm very, I was thrilled to discover that at this church, we put hope first. We preach of a miraculous resurrected Christ first. Not because the other themes are less important, or because this one's most important, but I think it's such a great place to start because we start by acknowledging the gift we've been given. We start by looking forward. We take time to meditate and reflect on this baby and what it means for you and for our world. We take time to stop and pause and just say, what does this represent? Never mind yet how it manifests itself. Just what does this represent? We start there. Start with the big idea. Some of you may recall several years ago, early in their first term, former President Barack Obama and his wife Michelle got into some hot water. They had been over visiting our very own Queen Elizabeth. And Mrs. Obama had the temerity to touch the Queen. This made headlines all over the world. You can't touch the queen without an invitation. And all they were doing was taking a photo when she placed her hand on the queen's back. And it made international headlines. It was a scandal of epic proportions that the first lady had the temerity to touch the queen. And I remember reading that and thinking, you know, it's really quite a dichotomy, really quite a contrast. The earthly queen is not allowed to be touched, and yet our king of the universe invites us to pick him up and hold him in our arms. He came in the form of a little baby, and there are a hundred reasons for that, but I think 
one of them has to be that he was inviting us to come and pick up the very hope that we have and hold it in our arms and admire it, to just stop for 30 seconds, to not always be thinking about the next plan. I've talked many times about how sometimes I preach to myself. This is one of those moments. I'm always thinking four and five steps down the road. But Christmas is such an important time to just stop, to just take a breath. And just think about what this represents. Christmas is a time that God directs our eyes to the manger and then tells us to breathe. And so if nothing else this Christmas, as we enter this time, this surprising time that is already here somehow, take a breath, stop and think with no agenda and just admire your God. Ask nothing of him with no timetable. Simply approach and take him in, his, in your arms and look upon his face. Does anybody remember the old show Antiques Roadshow that used to play on TV often? Maybe I'm dating myself here, but I used to love watching Antiques Roadshow because it was always so trumped up and you, and you knew that, that the stuff that was happening was prearranged ahead of time, but it was fascinating. These people would pick up things for a couple of dollars at a garage sale, and then they would go on to the show to ask what it was worth, and then yet somehow they were shocked when it was such a discovered that sometimes things were worth something, as if they didn't have an idea already when they showed up to ask. When I see that happen on that show, I'm always reminded about how God goes about taking people who are not seen as very valuable and placing very high value on them. Because that's the kind of God he is. How do we know that? Because we see it in the life of Jesus over and over again. And we see it starting with his birth. He was born in a stable for a reason. He was born around animals in the low for a reason. Because right from the very moment that Christ became incarnate on earth, he made it clear that he was not here for the people who are already healthy and righteous. He was here for the sinful and the sick, the poor and the weak, the people he, had pulled, he, he identified as being the lowest of the low, he saw them as treasures of the highest order. That's the hope we have. That's the beginning of the story. Everything else that comes after is based on that premise. That Christ was here for the lowest of the low. If Jesus had not come, we'd never know about God. But he did. And more than 2,000 years ago, he was born in a small stable and hope became personified. He gave up the throne of the universe for a manger. And because he did, we can enjoy the gift of heaven. We can just wait with anticipation. And I know on the live stream you can't see, but I'm looking at the tree. <laughs> we can wait with anticipation for what this means without yet having to worry about what we have to do. We can just wait with anticipation about what he has done for us. The hope that Christ gives us is more than enough without us, without us ascribing our own motives and things to it. So this week, join me. Join me in just reflecting on the beginning of Advent in a tough season, in a, in a, in a difficult year, in an uncertain year. What could be more timely? Christ 
standing, coming as a baby and saying, you have hope thanks to me. Let's pray. Father God, every word of Scripture points to the gift of hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. We know that the gift that you've given us, the Christmas story, was the beginning of that message of hope because the Old Testament is full of glimpses of your plan to redeem your people and restore them into relationship with you. Help us to see that you are with us, that nothing is too difficult, too messy, or too dirty for you. Jesus, come, come and be present and let us focus on you. Let us just sit and meditate on you. And we thank you that your Father sent you. We thank you that we can believe and repent of our sins because of this great gift we have been given. Because of that first gift, Christmas, that you gave us the hope wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And we thank you, Father, for your, this immeasurable gift. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.